Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have a very interesting and I would say very important show. I'll be speaking with Stephen Donziger, attorney at law, human rights attorney, who is well known, actually internationally known at this point, for his work with the indigenous people of Ecuador because they have been, in a sense, infiltrated some years back, actually, decades at this point, by at that time it was Texaco who came in and simply ravaged their land, their habitat, their home, their culture, and has caused immense damage. He'll be speaking with us about it. And he has been awesomely courageous and undaunted and persistent in defending them. And he's come a long way. We're going to learn the story here now. His defense fund needs help because he's doing this by himself, but yet with a tremendous amount of support from some good friends, colleagues, the Pachamama Alliance, and he's got good friends such as uh, Roger Waters of Pink Floyd and Sting and many other notables, Chris Hedges and others. And they put together a video recently to again further inform people about the good work that is being done. In fact, it's more than good work, it's actually essential work. And Stephen has been fighting this good fight for a long time. And we're very, very pleased and honored to have him on with us today to discuss this matter. Stephen, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Really appreciate I'm it. So glad. Absolutely. I forgot one of your interesting credentials is that at Harvard Law School, you played basketball with uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> so. Next to winning the environmental judgment, that might be my, my greatest accomplishment. <laughs> Taken well, outside on occasion. I would like to see him help you with this matter, quite honestly. Uh, so tell me um, and our audience about, you know, the beginning of this and just kind of walk us through, if you would, what happened and what inspired you to be involved in this matter. Yeah, so, you know, this is a 27-year litigation that's yet to end. Um, I got involved in 1993. I went to Ecuador, the Amazon of Ecuador, invited there by another lawyer, Cristobal Bonifaz, and a team of doctors. And we went to investigate what we, what we had been told was one of the world's worst oil catastrophes. Um, so when we got there in April of 1993, we toured the affected area for about a week met people, saw the damage with our own eyes, and I think we were all just absolutely stunned at the extent of the damage. It looked like an apocalyptic nightmare. Um, you know, there was oil on the ground. There were large pools of oil that were in these pits that had been gouged out of the floor of the jungle, um, some of them the size of Olympic swimming pools. Uh, there were pipes that Texaco, the company that did this, had, had inserted into the sides of these pits so they would take the overflow, these toxic waste, cancer-causing waste, and put them into streams and rivers that local people relied on for their drinking water, for their bathing, for their fishing. Um, now, did the Ecuadorian government uh, give permission to Texaco to do this back when they no. did? They gave them permission to drill, but they did not give them permission to pollute. And 
you know, so the answer to that is no. I mean, Texaco did this thinking it could get away with it, played God to thousands of people. Um, when the indigenous peoples who lived in the region questioned the Texaco engineers when this first started to happen about why there was black toxic waste in, in the water, mm -hmm. the engineers would say, hey, you know, it's good for you. It's medicinal. Um, it's like milk has vitamins in it. Total disrespect, total abuse, really criminal misbehavior by the Texaco engineers. You know, ultimately, we filed a lawsuit in New York. Texaco fought for years to move it back down to Ecuador, where they thought they could engineer a dismissal of the lawsuit. Oh, that's interesting. It so began ten, in New York. Yeah, for 10 years, we battled to try to get into the courthouse in New York and ultimately lost that battle. Went back down to Ecuador, worked with the local Ecuadorian team, really fabulous lawyers. Mm -hmm. We filed the case. Uh, every step of the way, by this time Chevron had bought Texaco and they were defending the case. Every step of the way, they were trying to obstruct the process. They claimed we had no jurisdiction over them, even though they had done this. Um, the trial lasted eight years, largely due to Chevron's obstructionism and sabotage. Ultimately, we won the case based on a massive amount of scientific and testimonial evidence, including 105 technical evidentiary reports. The evidence against them was voluminous and overwhelming and unassailable. Um, they knew they were going to lose, so and they did lose in 2011. We won a, a historic $9.5 billion judgment. And they then, rather than pay, they, said they threatened the indigenous groups with a lifetime of litigation unless they dropped the case. They then turned their guns on me and some of the other community leaders and sued us back here in New York in the original court where we had filed the lawsuit in the early 1990s. They said this court was never good enough. Suddenly they're back in the U.S. claiming their preferred jurisdiction of Ecuador wasn't good enough and had, you know. After they selected it. After they selected it. You know, this is called forum shopping and legal circles, <laughs> but it, what it really is is just complete bad faith litigation. Yes. And ultimately, they sued me for $60 billion, the largest amount of money. Uh, you personally? No, they sued me personally. For $60 billion. Which was three times treble damages on the original $20 billion judgment. I said it was 9.5. It was actually roughly 20, but it got cut in half later by the Ecuador Supreme Court. Oh. So they, back to 9.5, they really went after me. They went after the Ecuadorians and they engineered the case to a judge here in New York who's a former tobacco industry lawyer. His name is Lewis Kaplan. Mm -hmm. He exhibited animus toward us and bias in favor of Chevron from the get-go. I mean, he said crazy stuff like this isn't bona fide litigation. It's mud wrestling. He called me a PR flack, not a real lawyer. He wouldn't, he wouldn't acknowledge the basic humanity of the Ecuadorians. He kept calling them the so-called plaintiffs. Um, in the meantime, the judgment in Ecuador was affirmed by multiple appellate courts in Ecuador, including the Supreme Court of Ecuador, and multiple appellate courts in Canada where the Ecuadorian plaintiffs have gone to enforce their judgment because Chevron won't pay. Chevron. So when, in other words, it wasn't getting paid through the U.S. courts, you went then to other jurisdictions. Exactly. And that's an important point because, um, 
you know, in the law, if you win a judgment against a private party, a money judgment, and they don't pay, you have a right to go force them to pay by seizing their assets. Mm -hmm. um, what Chevron did, because they litigate, <clears throat> in my experience, in very bad faith, they sold off their assets in Ecuador, anticipating they would lose. And then they forced the indigenous peoples to hire lawyers in other countries to try to chase down assets in various countries. And one of the countries they chose was Canada which is a rule, you know, very rule of law country with a good judicial system. Yes. And, uh, you know, so the, ultimately the Canadian Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Ecuadorians saying they have a right to try to see Chevron's assets in Canadian courts. To make a long story short, <clears throat> all of that created so much risk for Chevron. They came back to Judge Kaplan mm -hmm. um, and tried to get my computer and cell phone so they could essentially spy on our internal activities and strategy so they could know what we were doing. And, you know, to me, that was blatantly illegal. I appealed the order to the second circuit. To you, but as in terms of standard practice and protocol, isn't that a transgression of it's a, it's a attorney privilege? Exactly. It's a complete violation of attorney client privilege and other privileges. Mm -hmm. Um, no one's ever heard of that ever happening. Like in the middle of a litigation, a judge orders one party to turn over his confidential case file to the other party. I've never heard of such a thing. I it's think Judge Kaplan uh, exhibited extreme bias against the Ecuadorians, arrogance. And as what my lawyer Deepak Gupta said, it's really, you know, it's a sad, sad look for the U.S. judiciary to treat the judiciary of another country in this way. Mm, mm -hmm. In any event, um, I appealed that order rather than comply because that would have put my, the lives of my clients in danger. And in my sure. view, it would have forced me to violate my own ethical obligations to them. And legal. And Yeah, ethical and legal. Well, the ethical obligations in the law are legally binding. Oh, okay. So um, when I did that and appealed, Judge Kaplan filed criminal charges against me. He first took them to, it's called criminal contempt, like when you supposedly willfully disobey a court order, which in my view, I didn't do. I was appealing it. Mm -hmm. um, he took it to the U.S. Attorney's Office, the prosecutor in Manhattan, the federal prosecutor who declined to prosecute. I think real quickly realized it was really not a legitimate case. So Judge Kaplan appointed a private law firm that has Chevron as a client to prosecute me in the name of the government. I think I am the first person in U.S. history who's being prosecuted by a private law firm who works for an oil company that against whom the target of the prosecution won a big judgment. I mean, it's, it's unheard of. This Basically, is so convoluted. And does Judge Kaplan have the right to do that? I mean, I've never heard of anything like this. I mean, I'm not you know, uh, a lawyer or anything of the sort, but I've just never heard of something like that. Well, look, in my view, Judge Kaplan and really any judge, judges do not have a right to abuse their power. I mean, their lifetime appointee, you know, and Truly. they do have a lot of power and it's hard yes. to, there's not a whole lot of accountability. Um, so you need you really need to rely on the good faith of the judges to take their duties to be neutral and to be fair very seriously. And I think in this case, Judge Kaplan, in my view, did not do that. Um, I think he is abusing his power. I don't think this case should ever have happened. And I think he's doing it to punish me because I've challenged Chevron and I've challenged a lot of his decisions 
including his underlying racketeering decision. I, I mentioned they sued me for $60 billion. Ultimately, he found against me after letting Chevron pay a witness $2 million to come in and claim that I bribed the judge in Ecuador, but there was no corroborating evidence. It did not happen. I completely reject it. The witness later admitted that he lied repeatedly before Judge Kaplan. Judge Kaplan never corrected his decision. And I've been challenging it both publicly and in other courts around the world, including in Canada. And I think it's very convenient, isn't it, for both Chevron and Judge Kaplan to sort of charge me criminally on this, you know, for resisting this very controversial order I turn over my computer. And I think, I think the big picture is corporate America, the fossil fuel industry in particular, is using the criminal laws to try to undermine, you know, environmental advocacy that's necessary to save the planet. I mean, they are trying to criminalize environmental advocacy, environmental activism, and lawyering. And they want to hold me up as an example, not only to help Chevron, in my view, evade a judgment that it owes to indigenous peoples and farmer communities in Ecuador, but also to send a message of intimidation. So the, hum the necessary human rights work, necessary work really to hold these companies accountable, to help save our planet. Sure. They don't want that work done at least not done successfully or too successfully as we're finding out. And conversely, you would like uh, to see this case be held up as an example of what can happen when people align and support the work of of a human rights attorney defending indigenous peoples across the country and any class, any group of people that are being harmed, for instance, just around the refineries, say in Louisiana or all over Texas, where usually, um, you know, minority groups live near those uh, locations and they're the ones suffering the pollution of the refineries. And Very true. Very it's just true. another example of the many, many suits that you could eventually bring. And if this were one to topple, 
in the proper direction, in the direction of people instead of corporations, they would have a true mess on their hands, as you've said. But I'd like to, that's the macro picture. That's utterly the most important part. But just getting down into the uh, weeds again, Stephen here, um, just to say, um, it looks like, it looks like uh, there could be a case and please correct my naivety legally against Judge Kaplan for abuse of his authority and is for a frivolous lawsuit that was started against you. And this whole thing could be flipped in the other direction. So please correct my misunderstanding if there is one. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to sort of get into that. I mean, the reality is judges have enormous power and it is the way our laws are written. They can charge lawyers with contempt of court um, criminally. There's no check on that power. It doesn't come out of a statute. It comes out of their power. But at that point, they're supposed to withdraw from the case and assign it to the system of random case assignment. Mm-hmm. He, he assigned it to his friend, Judge Preska, who's a member of the Federalist Society, um, of which Chevron is a major donor. She, in my opinion, she has a conflict of interest. Yes. Um, you know, again, he signed, he, he, he pointed a private law firm with Chevron as a client. The firm, the name of the firm is Seward and Kissel to prosecute me. Are you kidding me? And then they hid the fact that Chevron was a client for seven months while they pushed for my home detention on this bizarre theory that I'm a risk of flight. I have a wife and a son here. I've never missed a court appearance. I have a perfect disciplinary record as a lawyer. I've never, I don't have a single client complain against me in 29 years of practice. They, they concocted this theory that I'm a risk of flight and they used the fact that Kaplan charged me as a, without any evidence being presented. I mean, there's been no trial as proof, quote unquote, that I'm not trustworthy and therefore I should be locked up in my house. And I've been here now for 15 months. They later determined the case would be a misdemeanor to deny me a jury. The maximum sentence for a misdemeanor if convicted is six months in prison. There's never been a lawyer in New York history sentenced to prison for this charge. The longest sentence ever was in 1994 against Bruce Cutler, who was a famous defense lawyer, and he got three months of home confinement. So I've been in here five times as long as the longest sentence, and I even had a trial yet. They're denying me a jury, and the judge is also trying to deny me my counsel. She's already disqualified two of my lawyers based on a supposed conflict of interest, which concerns me. Um, I then got a substitute counsel, Ron Cooley, who's a very well-known defense lawyer, awesome guy, really skilled. And he said he could do it not till December 7th. She instead schedules it for election day, um, Tuesday, and then she switched it to November 9th and as a way to keep him out. And right now I have one lawyer who lives in Oregon who can't get here because of the danger of traveling during the COVID crisis. And, you know, if the trial goes forward on the 9th, I'm going to be without counsel. And I think that's deliberate. She's trying to blame me. But the whole thing really looks bad. There's been international trial monitors who have looked at this and written reports about how my due process rights are being violated. And by the way, 
isn't it unusual that we reached a point in the United States that, you know, an international trial monitoring process, I mean, this was used during the Nuremberg trials, during the Reichstag fire trials in Germany, you know, and in, in, in it's used all over the world in countries usually with weak judicial systems, is now being used in the United States for a case like this against a human rights lawyer. I mean, what does that tell you about where our country is? Really? And, you know, I'll also make this quick point. You know, right now yes. we're dealing with an election. We're dealing with a new Supreme Court appointment that was rushed through. Um, she's a member of the Federalist Society, Amy Coney Barrett, just like my judge. Yes. Um, there is an effort by the corporate elites and the corporations in this country to take over the federal judiciary, including the Supreme Court. And, I, and you know, there's a lot of forces being unleashed in our society right now that are quite dark. And I think that has emboldened these judges who I think are trying to help Chevron. And really they, they see it, you know, on a couple of levels. I mean, one is they don't want courts of another country like Ecuador in particular, telling a big U.S. company that it owes money, especially to marginalized peoples like indigenous groups. They don't like that. You know, they, they think there's a certain you know, imperialistic colonial approach to judgments from the, the court systems from the developing world. You see this reflected in the attitudes of many of the judges up here, not all, but some or a lot. Um, so, and then of course, they don't want other young lawyers to look at what I've done and not be scared to do the work. They want them to be scared. So it's a real battle, but you know, it doesn't change yes. the fact that we have won the case. I want to be very clear about that. This yes. is happening not because you anything won wrong the case. Because it went right. We actually won the case. And won the judgment. They want to judgment. try to destroy that. They want to yes. try to destroy that. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all men are apparently not created equal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't take this case to teach you that lesson. No, it doesn't. That's for sure. But it's just further reiterated here, the idea of this mega corporation, multinational corporation, having to pay out native peoples who walk around barefoot in the Ecuadorian Amazon and live off the, uh, the fruit of the land, so to speak, is too much for their egos to handle. And therefore, they would way rather spend billions of dollars to uh, keep their image of themselves and their pocketbooks intact and all That's of that. Right. But, you know, it, it's incredible the level of malfeasance. I mean, first of all, they never should have drilled the way that they drilled. I mean, they could have drilled the proper way, you know, and lined the pits and re-injected the waters of formation, which have cancer-causing materials instead of yes. dumping them into rivers and streams. I mean, they blew it from the very beginning. They cut every out of, corner. Out of greed, okay? Yes. So having made that terrible decision, which I call the original sin, mm -hmm. which really happened in the 1960s, and the decision was made here in New York, where Texaco's headquarters was at the time. That's why I said they paid God out of their New York headquarters to the people in the Amazon. Yes. Um, you know, they then had multiple opportunities over the years to, to ameliorate that problem or correct it by lining the pits for not a lot of money. They never did. We estimate they pulled out an additional $5 billion of, of revenue based on not using the proper production standards. 
Um, and then once they got caught and they were sued, you know, rather than deal with it, then they invested literally hundreds of millions of dollars. They've used 2000 lawyers, 60 law firms to fight us. And they're investing massive sums of money to, to not pay the judgment as opposed to taking that same money and paying the judgment, solving the problem and moving on. And why is this happening? Yes. I believe these kinds of judgments threaten them because they've done this in a lot of places around the world. And they don't want more lawsuits and it really threatens their business model, which is predicated to a great degree on, you know, um, taking the profits and then externalizing the cost of production. Exactly. You know, they take the profits, they socialize the costs onto the public. You know, you see this all over the world with Chevron and really many of the oil companies. You see sure. it in California, you see it all over the United States. And in Ecuador is an extreme example. And it happened this way in Ecuador because they felt they could get away with it because the people who lived in this region, you know, didn't count. They didn't rate in the eyes of the Texaco engineers. They were indigenous. They had no money in the Western sense of the world, by the way, even though they lived extremely prosperous. And life. therefore not valuable. They're not exactly. considered of value. They're exactly. not recognized as sentient beings. This is sort of, Stephen, the... Uh, epitome of predatory capitalism you know it's what gives the process the worst of all possible names you know um i want to just circle back i want to go back to this because i think this part of it is really the the hinge of it all but i'm i'm a little preoccupied with the judge and his behavior and i'm thinking you know we can impeach a president we can even impeach an attorney general, which I think we should have done recently. Uh, is it not possible to impeach a judge or in some way have some kind of redress for abuse of power? It's a great question. I mean, there are very few options. I mean, option one, the obvious one is the appellate court can reverse the trial judge. We haven't seen no evidence that the appellate court, um, you know, wants to really acknowledge what's happening here in a way that they would reverse the trial judge. You know, maybe they will down the road, but meantime, massive damage is being done to me and my family and my clients in Ecuador. Yes. Um, impeachment is an option, but only four federal judges in the entire history of the United States since 1776 have been impeached. Four. Um, so the a, mechanism is in place. It's in place, but it's very difficult to use. It's unlikely, but it's possible. Very difficult to use. And then there's also an, a, a complaint process in which a, a bunch of lawyers from around the world, 37 bar associations and over 200 lawyers, signed a 40-page ethics complaint against Judge Kaplan that documents his years of misconduct or what they say is his misconduct on this case. And they're asking for an investigatory committee within the court oh. to into it and produce a report. But, you know, it's unclear what's happening. It was filed. It's not a terrifically transparent process. And there's no, you know, evidence that they're taking it seriously, although I hope they are. Um, it's very difficult. Very difficult. I mean, the main thing is just to talk about it publicly mm -hmm. and um, try to, you know, try to create some degree of accountability. 
even if it's not complete accountability, because it's very important people know about this. And by the way, if you want to read the judicial complaint, mm-hmm. it's on the website of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, IADL.org. Okay. Check it out. It's fascinating. And one other thing I want to mention, a lot of the materials for the case, if people want to follow it, you can find on my Twitter account. I don't know if your audience is into the whole Twitter thing, but my Twitter oh, handle yes. is at, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, Twitter handle is at S Donziger, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R. Okay. Follow me on Twitter. You can get a lot of the updates and the, you know, the documents that are being filed in the case. Sure. Sure. That's very helpful. That's really good. So as of now to bring this wholly up to date, uh, despite all of the horrors that have been committed in the lungs of the world, the Amazon rainforest. I was privileged enough to be down there, Stephen, back in the mid-1980s. And uh, it was uh, Peru, Iquitos, and down in that direction between Peru and Brazil. But I had the deeply beautiful experience of meeting native peoples, indigenous people, and being kind of toured around by them, going down the Amazon, swimming with piranhas, actually, and dolphins, and uh, um, just having an extraordinary experience of the medicines, of the rainforest, the people, etc. So I've always had a very soft part of my heart that is connected. And when I learned, which I had learned only back then, that it was one of the lungs of the planet, the other one said to be the Congo, uh, you know, we need it. And yeah. that this kind of abuse would happen anywhere is beyond the can of our understanding, but that it be done in one of the most biodiverse places on the planet, in people's own homes, literally, is beyond... Uh, I understand what has driven you for so long to do this yeoman's job that you have done. And I, I just so deeply commend you and the people behind you and your family, by the way, for having stuck by you through all of this. So I just wanted to say that. Well, very, very nice. You know, there are a couple of things you touch on that bear emphasis. I mean, one is, you know, this really is about the people of the Amazon. Um, you know, it is about me too, but it's yeah. mostly about them. I mean, yeah. you know, they are the frontline defenders of the earth. The, the yes, very true. Peoples. Um, I am a trained professional who, who did my best to stand alongside them and help them. You know, I work for them. They don't yes. work for me. I work for them. A lot of people are like, oh, that's Stephen's case. You know, it's their case. And I want to say that no matter what happens to me, and I'm facing difficulties that I'm confident I will get through. Yes. But regardless yes. of what happens to me personally, this case exists. It's viable. They won. They have other lawyers, many other lawyers working on it. In other mm-hmm. And I'm personally confident that ultimately the affected communities, the indigenous groups and the other communities are going to recover this judgment and be able to clean up their rainforest, or at least restore it to some degree. So it's once again, safe to live there and they can get clean water, clean air and and clean, you know, food and clean fish and that kind of stuff. So I just don't want people to confuse my situation with their situation. 
That's right. No, it's a very connect, good point. But they're not one and the same. That's right. No, I, I very much appreciate that. And, yeah. and having said that, one other quick thing that please is it's important to protect me. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of explain. Yes. I am a stand-in for That's what I wanted to get around to. Where you're where yeah. you stand right now. I mean, you mentioned November third, you mentioned November seventh, is it or ninth? Yeah. And you know, this is imminent and I really please take a few moments to share with our audience. So as well as ways that our larger community can be of some help and service to you and to this whole uh, effort. Yeah. So like all citizens in in, in the United States and anywhere in the world, you know, you are entitled to a fair trial, an unbiased judge, a neutral prosecutor. I have none of that. Um, I have no jury. I have no neutral fact finder. The judge has already locked me up 15 months with no evidence. You know, she's obviously prejudged the case. Um, I'm demanding a fair trial. The trial that she's designing for November 9th will not be a fair trial. I guarantee she will convict me, um, even though I have really strong defenses and I believe I'm innocent. Um, You know, this case is called United States versus Stephen Donziger, but it really isn't. It really ought to be called chevron versus the people of ecuador i'm just a stand-in i'm a stand-in for their attacks on the people of ecuador and they think by attacking me somehow all the lawyers will give up and the case will just go away and they will be able to win by might but they cannot win by merit so the trial is very perilous Um, i'm urging everyone to pay attention to it you can dial in because of covid and listen to it Mm -hmm. we're still trying to get when it's live it's live. You can dial in and listen. So people can listen live. Wow. And, and I will give you the number. It's the court has a number. You can call and listen. Oh, and it's particularly important to listen the morning of the first day. The we'll trial put will this last. down second. on the, yeah, so people can listen yeah. and see. And, um, you know, so it's important the court know it's being monitored by the public. You know, it's, it's a level of protection. It's my right under the Sixth Amendment to have a public trial. Um, but again, we want it postponed. I mean, I can't even get witnesses to court because of COVID. I have witnesses in Ecuador and Spain and Canada, among other places, and they, they can't travel here because of COVID restrictions. You know, my lawyer, my one remaining lawyer can't get here. The judge won't put off the trial until she and my other lawyer, Ron Kuby, can show up, which is incredibly rude. She's basically, in my opinion, using scheduling kind of tactics issue to eviscerate my right to mount a defense and my right to counsel. So it is a it's a trial in name only and I'll do my best if if I have to get in there, but we're trying to put it off. It'll be it will not be a fair trial. The good thing is these international monitors are watching it will be fully documented. And I think ultimately if it goes forward the way she's designed it on November 9th, it's going to be very embarrassing for the federal judiciary. Yes. Um, so hopefully we'll get it postponed. It'll, it'll be able, I mean, I think the case should be dismissed. I mean, sure. you know, this is, this, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, you know, they try to act like it's, oh, my computer and my list and the this and the that. No, no, no. This is about destroying advocacy for indigenous peoples who held a fossil fuel company accountable for what is probably the world's worst oil pollution. They're trying to frame it as these technical issues with me. That's not what this is really about. That's not what's really going on. So, it's a red herring. 
yeah, I'm asking people to watch the trial, listen to it. I think that's great. Spread the word, get on, you know, get on our website, makechevroncleanup.com. Indeed. Join the campaign. I have a defense fund. We need funds to do this work. If you can, any amount of a donation, I totally appreciate it. Is there it. a website for that? Yes, sir. That, that site is donzigerdefense.com, all one word, donzigerdefense, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R-D-E-F-E-N-S-E.com. And on that site are a lot of pictures of the damage and you know, testimonials from people, as well as a, an explanation of the case and a, a button that you can click on and make a donation. Wonderful, wonderful. Do you know the phone number of the court? Uh, I as do, but I don't have it right in front of me. Ah, do you need me to okay. find and say it? <laughs> You'll get it to me and we'll put it in okay. to okay. the video portion Thank of you. this for TV and, and I'll build it in anyhow to okay. the podcast platform. Yeah, not a problem, not a problem. But this is all, I mean, I've got to say, I think there may be some poetic justice. I mean, as I listen, as objectively as I can, even though it's a very subjective, heartbreaking experience to hear, um, it does seem that this is such malicious activity on the part of now two judges, at least, that there has to be some, you know, legal retribution. I don't like that word, but a, a balancing out, as it were, and I just can't help but laugh at the thought of uh, calling them both out on frivolous lawsuits because there is no defense for their positions. <laughs> There's to the contrary, and it's all based on a false predicate, which is the idea that you would be obliged legally to hand over your uh, laptop with confidential information between you and client. I mean, the whole thing is so, it's like, stages of um of uh things that are outrageous you know one outrageous thing on top of another on top of another like it's a layer cake of a mess that they've created so it seems to me that a skilled attorney should be able to kind of disentangle that and really put forward a frivolous lawsuit with treble damages by the way <laughs> well you know, I'll, 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 I'm not going to comment on that other than to say I think accountability is important. It's not about retribution. It's about no. accountability, about the rule of law. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I you're looking for account, legal accountability. That's right. You know, that's right. Exactly. Um, and it's important that that, ha that apply equally to every member of society, right? I mean, Absolutely. Included, corporations included. And, you know, the fundamental challenge of our day, I think, is will human rights law, the protections of human rights law, be applied to everybody, you know? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. You know, the, you can't make exceptions just because indigenous groups win a case. I mean, I was like, oh, and, you know, human rights apply to indigenous peoples and other rural communities in the Amazon. But then they win a case and suddenly they don't get to collect. Because Chevron's able to abuse the legal system with 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers. We really need to think hard about our judiciary and about the importance of it being fair and neutral to our future as citizens on this planet. I don't think people pay enough attention to it. And I, I think people need to focus on it a little bit more. 
I think you're very right. And uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, you may have seen his demonstration, if you will, during the uh, Conant, uh, you know, uh, Amy, um, Amy Coney Barrett, yeah. Coney Barrett uh, uh, hearing, uh, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. Because he followed the money trail of how the judiciary appointments are made and what is the money behind it. And it's just a straight trail because most people don't think about that in the judiciary and certainly not the Supreme Court. We all give a sort of a naive uh, nod that at least they are impartial. It's one thing for Congress, the Senate, to receive lots of dark money, but the Supreme Court to arrange those placements, that's just something that we hold sacrosanct. And it's, I think it really boggles the mind that there is so much money behind those appointments. And Sheldon Whitehouse, to his great credit, just laid it out for all to see in plain daylight. And this is the kind of thing you're talking about. There's another very important thing here, Stephen, that you're, this case is highlighting, which is, if you will, the archetype of David and Goliath. I mean, it's just, again, you spoke about the oil industry's um, MO, you know, their, their business model, in fact. And they would go into, and they do go into these places of developing countries, so-called third world countries, like South America back in the day of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, like Africa, and they do untold damage, environmental damage, human damage, using carcinogenic materials, on and on and on. And without a thought, without a hesitation that the, of the damage that they are doing, and just with the hubris that they can simply get away with it. They're rich and mighty. These people are poor, and they have very little infrastructure in government, and they're just used to getting away with everything, and they're going to continue. And you're blowing the whistle on it. The indigenous people of Ecuador are blowing the whistle on it. And it looks like it may be, I don't know if it's tomorrow or the next day or next month or next year, but it's coming to a stop. So we have you and all the people behind you. Give us an idea of a few of the people who are behind you. So our audience, can I name a few at the beginning? But this is a very large, very well-known case. And I would love for our audience to know something more about its largesse and its impact as well, uh, legally. Yeah, I mean, there's so many people, but, you know, in a nutshell, there's some incredible lawyers in Ecuador who led the case in Ecuador, not me. Uh, Juan Pablo Sanz, Julio Prieto, Pablo Fajardo, and others. Alejandro Ponce. And then there's, in the United States, I mean, Jim Tyrell and Eric Westenberger, the late Eric Westenberger from Patton Boggs, John Kecker, one of the great trial lawyers of America, Craig Smizer, Larry Veselka from, the, from their law firm in Houston, Aaron Page, who teaches at the University of Iowa Law School, 
um, fabulous lawyers have, have worked on trying to protect the Ecuadorian judgment from these attacks here in the United States. And, you know, there's a lot of other lawyers, Rick Friedman and um, Zoe Littlepage, who are fabulous trial lawyers, very well known. And then up in Canada, Alan Lentzner and others have been helping enforce the judgment, and as well as in other countries, Argentina, Enrique Bruchu, and um, in Brazil, we've had some incredible counsel. So, you know, there's a lot of, this case has attracted some extremely high quality, highly respected lawyers. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't add up, does it? Like when they say the case is a fraud, why would all of these prominent lawyers be yes. working on it? People, and the ACLU too, correct? Nadine Strassen, a former president of the ACLU, is, is on the case monitoring committee. She's been incredibly helpful. Michael Tiger, probably one of the most well-known, most respected scholars and trial lawyers in the country. And Scott Bodnack from the American Bar Association. I mean, there are some, you know, and there are actually two retired federal judges, Nancy Gertner and Mark Bennett, you know, wrote an article criticizing Judge Kaplan for really you know, these excessive charges he's targeting me with. And that's very unusual to see federal judges, you know, yeah. criticizing a, a sitting federal judge in writing publicly. So, you know, there's a lot of support. I also have the support of 55 Nobel laureates who just released a statement. 475 bar associations and lawyers around the world put out a statement, you know, criticizing my treatment. Um, Chris Hedges, Chris Hedges, uh, Sharon Lerner, The Intercept, James North of the Nation. Um, a lot of people are watching this closely, but we need more. I mean, it's it's, it's as many as are watching it. You know, it's not enough. And and really, a lot of the the media, the big media in the United States, aren't covering the story at all. Um, so you have to get it. This is a story for 60 minutes, Stephen, and a better world, of course, but 60 minutes should be on this. That, that would be a good idea. 60 minutes did do a segment in 2009 and Chevron really went after them. And I think that, you know, I don't know. I think Chevron has a, you know, as much as they try to intimidate human rights lawyers, they also try to intimidate journalists who cover this. So, you know, they've gone after a bunch of journalists who've either written about this or published stories. They try to kill stories that they believe are going to be unfavorable. They use their ad money as leverage. And, you know, they are very, very aggressive and I think unethical in terms of their overall strategy, which is to intimidate those who speak out. I mean, it's really a, it's a strategy predicated on violating the First Amendment, in my opinion, to to, to sort of like the mafia would shut people up who posed a threat. And I think they do that both in terms of lawyers and in terms of journalists. Yes. As you're saying, all of this points a finger to our system as well as our way of thinking and the way that we attribute authority in our and prestige in our society and money rules as though money were character or integrity. It, they are not. A corporation is not a person. You get that, Supreme Court? And it's not fair. It's not reasonable. And the whole way we have organized society really needs to be reviewed. And I think that that's what's going on for the good, even though it seems 
way slow for so many of us who have been on this path for decades, it is happening in its own way, inch by inch. So Stephen Zanziger, I just want to thank you for the great work you're doing. And uh, I, I know this is November 9th is coming up soon. And uh, if there are any lawyers out there who could help <laughs> in a pinch, please come forward. This would be the time for sure. But uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to share some of this incredible story. Always keep the people in Ecuador in mind. They're still suffering. Thousands have died of cancer. And until they get the funds that they legitimately won in court in order to clean up the damage, they're going to be in a whale of a big problem, um, a life-threatening problem. So we need to keep that in mind. We need to protect free speech and protect the right to advocate in this country. And we need to watch this very, very closely. And please remember, if you can help, please go to donzigerdefense.com. Um, you can learn more about the case. If you're, if you're in a position to do so, please make a donation. And also follow me on Twitter at sdonziger. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share with your listeners and viewers um, the situation. My pleasure. Thank you again, Stephen. Thank you. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. I hope you appreciated that as much as I did. It's riveting. It's scary. It's hopeful. It has all of the ingredients of an outrageous soap opera, and uh, except that it's real. So uh, if you are able to make a donation, please do help Stephen Dunziger out. Uh, this is a critical moment in the entire evolution of the case. So your participation on every level is meaningful. Thanks again for watching and listening. This is Mitchell J. Raven for A Better World. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you.